Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. When I was younger, we would sit down every evening for supper and the man who adopted me was huge on table manners. I think that's where I learned, Miss Gail, is placing your elbows on the table was a good way to get slapped. You would also have to ask things in my house around the table. It was like you didn't reach for anything. It was, please pass the potatoes. May I please have another helping of green beans? When I was finished eating, I absolutely knew there was something I had to say before I could get up from that table. If I didn't say these words, I would sit at that table until Jesus come back. And those were these words. I had to say this every day of my life, growing up in my home before I left any meal. May I please be excused. That was what I had to say. Now listen, some of those manners I did not appreciate. (laughs) But I am so thankful that I was taught some delicate table manners. It saved me some embarrassing moments. Sometimes, you know, when you don't use your manners or your kids don't use your manners, people can be offended. You can come off as rude. (laughs) You can come off even as being unthankful for the meal that's in front of you. A lot of times you can maybe let people know that you think that you're just entitled to be at the table. No matter where you come from with table manners, that's not what we're really talking about necessarily is those table manners. We're talking about these table manners. This morning. That's exactly where Paul is going to help us as we continue to preach through the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul's going to tell us about the appropriate table manners for the Lord's Supper. You know, as we study the, the Lord's Supper in Scripture, one of the things we find out is, is how little we're told about what to do when we come to this table. We don't really know about if we should have a common cup. And we just pass that sucker around. We don't know if we're supposed to take those little packets like we were doing during COVID. We don't know if we're supposed to have it like we have it here. But what we do know is, is that God puts a huge emphasis on the way that we're supposed to prepare our hearts and what we're supposed to do spiritually when we come to the Lord's table. And so let's read in our Bibles this morning. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 We're going to begin reading in verse 17, and we'll go all the way through verse 34. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, I want you to know there's one probably in the seat pocket or the seat underneath the seats there around you. If you can't find one, just ask somebody. There's probably going to be one somewhere somebody can help you with. And then we'll be on page 1033 in those Bibles this morning. And if you have a copy of my Bible, it's on page 274 in my New Testament. But irregardless, we want you to be in the Word of God with us. And so as we do here to honor when God is speaking, I wonder if you would yet rise again to your feet as we hear and read God's Word together. It'll be on the screen behind me, and we're going to read from God's Word. The Bible says these words for, he says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but what, church? For the worse. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and I, in part, I believe it. 
For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, one takes his own supper first, one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the blood and the body of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Listen to these words. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining manners I will arrange when I come. You may be seated. and May God bless the reading of his holy word. You know, in all four of the Gospels, we have mention of the Lord's Supper. But this right here is, is known amongst many of us. Is, it's known as the Last Supper. It was the last meal that Christ had before he was crucified. Now, the Gospels tell us what's said and a few things about what happened but here in our text this morning, we have an, an account of the Lord's Supper that was written before any one of the Gospels was ever written. The book of 1 Corinthians was written before the Gospels. So what we have here is really the first of all things in the Scripture of ever being recorded of the Lord's Supper. You see, the Gospels were interested in what happened. And Paul here tells us not only what happened then, but what should happen now. So we're going to learn about maybe four things, that the, kind of some table manners, if you will, about the Lord's Supper. Here, here's the first thing that we learned from our text this morning. We can avoid the perversion of the Lord's Supper. We can avoid the perversion of the Lord's Supper. You see, the Lord Jesus deeply desires unity in his body, but especially when we come together for the Lord's Supper. Think about it. Another word for what we'll do today is communion. It means that we have a lot of things in common, and therefore we're unified over that. That's why it's called communion. We come and we share, and we're all reminded that all we have in common is, is our faith in Jesus. But here's what was happening in Corinth. That was not what was happening. So Paul tells them how to avoid perverting the Lord's Supper. And he gives them a couple of principles. He says, hey, we must refuse divisive situations. We have to refuse divisive situations in our body. 
It seems like Paul is just constantly addressing problems in 1 Corinthians. So he begins here in verse 17, if you'll turn your eyes there, he says, I'm going to give you guys some instruction. Now that word there for instruction, and he says to give it, it's a command. It's not just good advice. As a matter of fact, when Paul says he wants to give them instruction, he's using the language, the exact language of how a military commander would speak to his troops. And Paul is saying, I'm not happy with you guys, and I'm going to instruct you on what's wrong. He does not praise their behavior. As a matter of fact, he says, it's not for good that you come together. It's for the worse. That's interesting there. That word there for worse, it speaks of moral evil. So in other words, when they were coming together, there was morally some evil going on when they were coming together. It's interesting. They went from times of loving fellowship and spiritual enrichment to times of self-indulgence, shaming of poor brethren, and even mocking the Lord's death. And that was so detrimental that the Lord said, and this is the reason why some of you are sick and some of you have even died. This is a big deal. He says that when they came together as a church there, he says, so when you come together, when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. The church is the assembly of the believers. It's never referenced in the scripture as a building or the place where we meet. When you come together, it means the church. It's the, the ones who have been called out, the ones who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus to save them from their sins. When you guys come together like that, verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a, as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and I in part believe it. The word divisions there is the word schismata. We get our word schism from. It means to tear or to cut. It refers to that which divides or cuts that was at one time one, but now is in parts. And Paul says, listen, there, there's something that's coming, and it's tore your unity apart. There, there's schisms. There's division. You're not one anymore. And Paul says, listen, Somebody could have written me and told me and maybe exaggerated that a little bit, but Paul says, no, it's not really exaggerated because I, in part, I believe it. I believe what I'm hearing, verse 19. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. The word here is the word heresias, and it's where we get our word heresy from. They're not just being selfish and divisive. Some of them are even getting heretical with some of the things that they're saying and they're doing. And that only contributes to the further divisions and attacks that that Christ has died to give us unity about. And he says, even though this is happening, some good, though, is coming from it. And I want you to see that. He said, there's division and there's even some heresy, but but there's good. God, God can superintend all that because he says there, there, there must be, this must happen so that those who are approved may become evident among you. That's interesting. He says that when it becomes, when there's, there's division in the church, and there's even some people going around spreading some stuff, God's going to use that to just approve those who are really his. That word approved is the word that, that was used for coins that have passed the test to be put out into circulation. It was the word approved means the precious metals that had been put into the fire and had all the imperfections removed so that they could be approved as being pure. 
Paul says that in the midst of this divisive behavior, those who are pure, those who are walking in the spirit, and those who are not walking in the flesh will become readily apparent and evident amongst everybody. As painful as church division is, as painful as conflicts are, they can be used of the Lord to prove the value of his true saints. In the midst of the bickering, in the midst of the fighting, the approved are set apart from the dross as pure gold. You see, trouble and tension in the church creates a situation where spiritual strength, wisdom, and leadership become evident. God will entrust the work of his church to those who then have been approved. So he says, we must refuse divisive situations. And then he says this, we must refuse destructive situations. Destructive situations. He says there in verse 20, he says, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, one takes his own supper first, one is hungry, and one is drunk. And then he says, listen, guys, you could do that stuff at home. When you come to church, that's not what we're trying to do. He says that he's talking about, he says, when they come for the supper, when they come together, when they meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper for in your eating. Now, that's an interesting word. That there is the word for the evening meal, like we would call it supper or dinner, depending on you were raised here. But he's specifically referring to their love feast. The Corinthians had a, a big fellowship meal in which they sat down together and, and people would bring all kinds of food, like when we have a fellowship meal here. It was a big feast together. They called it a love feast. Isn't that ironic? They call this meal a big love feast, but when what was happening is they weren't in a hurry, that they would just hang around for hours, and then at the end of that meal, they would partake of the Lord's Supper. And so what was happening is the wealthier people would arrive early and bring all kinds of good, scrumptious food, and they would eat it all, and then those who were less fortunate, who were out there working in the fields, just barely scraping by, would come and would want something to eat, and there was nothing to eat. And then the wealthy, because they could afford all kinds of wines and, and all kinds of drinks, they had it all there, and then they would just drink it all up to the extent that they were all drunk, and then their, their brothers and sisters who'd been out just barely scraping by would come in and just were parched of thirst, and they couldn't find anything to drink, and it wasn't just really that, but everybody else was already drunk. This is crazy. This is absolutely nuts. They not only kept the food from others, but they had drank so much and enjoyed it so much, now they were completely drunk. And Paul says, that right there is destructive in the church. Verse 22, he says, you, you pay attention to the Greek. It's, it's one word and it has an exclamation point. And here's what Paul is saying. If he could speak out loud to us today, here's what he would say. What? You gotta be kidding me. Do you have houses in which you can eat and drink, or do you despise? Do you see that? Or do you not despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? And what shall I say to you? I have nothing good to say to you. You guys are only thinking about yourselves. And you're doing what you're doing in a way that you sinfully are despising the church of God and shamefully 
shamefully destroying your brothers and sisters. And here's what we gather from the the verbs and the tenses in the Greek. They were intentionally coming to church to be divisive and destructive. It wasn't that it just kind of happened once they got there. They packed their stuff up and brought it to church to cause a stink. So Paul says, I'm not going to praise you. This is absolutely wrong. This is a perversion of the Lord's Supper, and it must be avoided at all costs. It's kind of like this, okay? It's kind of like we said, hey, you know what? Next Sunday, we're going to have a fellowship out here on the grounds. Well, what I want y'all to do is everybody bring some food and bring enough drink for everybody, and we'll just go out there. We're just all going to love one another, and then at the end of that, we'll take the Lord's Supper. So y'all come. We're going to start right at 5. Everybody show up. At 3.30, all the wealthy people in the church showed up, and y'all brought steak Y'all brought brisket, and y'all brought some good old sweet tea, man. Y'all, y'all had it going on. At about 5.10, the brothers and sisters in the church are barely squeaking by, working hard for their money, barely even making rent. They showed up about 5.10, and they had water and toast. And they were like, hey, where's the brisket? Some people in the church were like, well, we ate it all. Well, man, don't we have any iced tea? No, nah, man, but them, them tall 40s, man, we put them down. Man, there's a few cans. Maybe you can get a couple of drinks out of it. I don't know. And then somebody at the end stands up and says about 5.45, 6 o'clock, man, wasn't that a great meal that we had together? Everybody just loving each other. I love this church. And then somebody who didn't get anything stood up and said, I don't know what y'all had but I didn't get anything. And if that's the way this church is going to be, I'm out of here. That's what was happening. And I don't want to take too much time to apply this, but the same stuff still goes on today just in different ways. So Paul says, hey, we we need to avoid Division. So let me ask you, are you being divisive in this body? Are you shaming in any way somebody who may be less fortunate than you? Are you a part of a clique? Nobody else can seem to get in no matter how hard you try. Are you even here this morning for the right motives? So Paul says we can avoid the perversion of the Lord's Supper. Then secondly, he says we can acknowledge the price of the Lord's Supper. We can acknowledge the price of the Lord's Supper. Look there in verse 23. You've heard these words many times here in our church. He says, for I received from the Lord. That's so critically important. Who do you receive it from, church? Okay, so Paul's telling us here's exactly what I heard from the Lord. Here's exactly what the Lord Jesus taught me. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul says he received this from the Lord, and now he's delivering it to them. Again, this is the earliest account of the Lord's Supper. So on that last night, Jesus took bread, the bread of the Passover. And that bread was symbolic of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. 
It was unleavened bread because leaven was a symbol of sin, but it was also unleavened because they had to get out of there and and in haste. They couldn't wait for the bread to rise. But it was symbolic of sin. The bread was unleavened and pointed to Jesus who would come and live a spotless, sinless, perfect life in a very earthly body. The Bible tells us, you know these words, that Jesus was tempted in all ways like we are, yet he was without sin. Then the Bible says that when he had given thanks, that's the word Eucharisto from which we get our word Eucharist. That's why some people refer to this as communion. Some people call it the Lord's Supper. Some people call it the Eucharist. The word Eucharisto means to give thanks. So when Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread. And that does not mean that his body was broken. It means that he broke it to share it. Jesus willingly shares his perfect, sinless body for all sinners. That's why he said, it is for you. It's interesting, though, that the word broke is in the passive voice. In other words, it's something that happens to something. It's not something that somebody does. If if I say, I put this book down, did this book put itself down? No, that's in the passive voice. I acted upon this book. Jesus said that he took the bread and he broke it. The bread didn't break itself. You're saying, why is that important? Why, do you, why does that matter? Because Jesus didn't just get on the cross and, break, and, and give himself for us. The Father acted upon the Son. It was the Father's plan. The Father put the Son on the cross. Jesus willingly obeyed his Father. The Bible tells us that the Father laid our sins upon Jesus, that the Father was pleased to bruise his Son for you and I. Isaiah 53.10 says these words, listen, but the Lord the Father desired to crush Jesus. That is unbelievable to me. Causing him grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You see, Jesus gave us his sinless body to satisfy our spiritual hunger. He gave it for us. I don't know if you've paid attention there, but that word for us means something theologically. It means that it was a vicarious substitute. It was something given in our place. Jesus' body took the place of our body. We we deserve to be on the cross. But Jesus gave his body so that we wouldn't have to. It's given for us. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus gave his body and died on the cross for us. He, He did it in our place. It's for us. Verse 25, he says, then he took the cup after supper, the cup of the new covenant in his blood. Passover began with the host pronouncing a blessing over the first of four cups. The wine symbolized the blood of the lamb that had just been slain. And here it's symbolic of the blood of Jesus, the lamb of God, who was slain before the foundation of the world, the Bible tells us. After the first cup, bitter herbs were dipped in in this salty fruit sauce that was was eaten to, to symbolize bitterness of slavery and the tears that they shed in Egypt. And after they drank of the first cup, they would sing the Hallel, Psalm 113 and Psalm 114. And then the second cup would be passed. 
And after the second cup, the host would break and pass around the unleavened bread to symbolize the haste in which they left. And then the meal proper would be served to include a roasted sacrificial lamb. And it's at this point, after after the, the first cup of, of the blood and after the body, it was at that point that the third cup would be passed and then they would sing Psalms 115 through 118. And then the fourth cup would celebrate the coming of the kingdom and then they would sing one final song. Why do I take the time to tell you that? Because it was after supper. The third cup was drunk. Why? Because the bread had been consumed and the wine symbolizing the blood had been consumed. And it was because Jesus was saying, that is what's happened. I'm going to give my body and my blood because this is the cup of redemption. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant. Not like what the old symbolized. Jesus is talking here about the new covenant. See, the blood of the animals that was symbolic of that blood in that cup were continually being offered year after year after year. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to be a one-time, all-encompassing sacrifice. No other sacrifice will ever be needed. This is the new covenant in my sinless, perfect blood. And the cup with that juice inside of it would remind them of the crushing of grapes is how it got to be there. And it pointed to the crushing that Jesus would go through. The nail in his feet, the nails in his hands, the crown of thorns on his head, the open wounds from the merciless lashing that he took, the spear that was jabbed in his side. It was a bloody, bloody mess. But that was the only price that could be paid for sinners. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. And the blood of Jesus pays for our sin and cleanses us from all sin. You see, 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah told us how Jesus would be killed. Isaiah 53, 6, it says this, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Can anybody say amen there? Each of us has turned to his own way. Does anybody qualify for that? But do you not see the mercy of God? But the Lord has called the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. You see, here I have in my pocket, I have my cell phone. And it has all kinds of personal info on this. I've got my emails here. I've got my text messages here. I've got a lot of pictures here. Matter of fact, the number of steps I've taken this morning are here important dates, my friends, my schedule, intimate details about my life. I've got a lot of notes on this thing. But here's something that I would find would be interesting. What if your cell phone could keep up with all the thoughts and imaginations of your heart? What if your cell phone had the ability to keep up with every single thing you've ever did wrong or, or that, you did, that you didn't do that you should have done? In other words, what if your cell phone also contained every single one of your sins? Let's just imagine that it could. So let me demonstrate here what's happening. My left hand can represent my life, and this phone represents all of my sin. And all of my sin is in my life, and I have it, and they're, they're intricately woven together. And listen, because of this, because of my sin, I deserve death. I, I deserve being separated from God. I deserve to be punished eternally in a place called hell. That, that's the truth. 
because of my sin. God is holy and God must punish my sin. And my sin is always in front of God and my sin always separates me from God. But, but, but. Let's just imagine now that my right hand represents Jesus Christ. And and my right hand is Jesus Christ. And here's what Isaiah 53, 6 tells me, that God took all of my sin. God took all of my sin and he placed it upon Jesus Christ. Now guess what I get? I get free. I get cleansed. And I get redeemed because my sin is gone and I bear it no more. Who bears my sin? Jesus bears my sin. Jesus took my sin and he gave me his perfect life. That's what we're celebrating here. That's what this is about. That God would love us so much that he would take our sin and bruise his son and it would please him because he so loves us. He doesn't want us to die and have to pay for our own sin, church. So when we come to this table, we do this in remembrance of him because we acknowledge the price of the Lord's Supper. We also avoid perverting it. Thirdly, we can anticipate the promise of the Lord's Supper. We get to anticipate the promise. Look there in verse 26. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until what, church? Until he comes. You see, when we're at the Lord's Supper, we often think about looking back, but we also need to look forward. We're looking forward to the day when we gather around the table in heaven. Matter of fact, Jesus told us in Matthew 26, 29, he said, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. One day, beloved, we're going to sit with Jesus and he's going to be the host of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The church is the bride of Christ and Jesus is the bridegroom. And we're going to gather at a great wedding feast, amen. If you haven't ever heard about it, let me tell you, it's in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 9. The Bible says these words, let's rejoice, let's be glad and give glory to him. Why? Because the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and the bride has prepared herself. It was given to her to clothe her in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is a righteous act of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Amen. You see, one day we're going to have a wedding feast. But to understand that more fully, you have to know that in those days, weddings had three parts. The first part was this. The groom would pay the dowry price to the bride's parents, and then they would sign a marriage covenant. And from that moment forward, they were considered betrothed to one another. The second part of the wedding in those days was this, that then the groom would come with a lot of his friends with torchlight, and they would walk through the city on the way to the bride's house. The groom would come with his friends and torches, and they're looking for the bride. Now, she knew, she knew he was coming, but she didn't know the exact hour. She was waiting with all of her friends and attendants, and she was waiting for him to say these words. And he would come with torchlight, and he would get to her house, and he would look at the window, and he would say these words, Arise, my love, and come with me. 
And then the third part was this, the marriage feast, when all would come and celebrate the union of the bride and the groom. Hey, I need you to get excited with me just for a second. Because the Bible says that we're the bride and Jesus is the groom. And guess what, church? The dowry has already been paid. Jesus Christ paid our dowry when he went to the cross and shed his blood. But then the marriage covenant has already been signed as well. If you have ever placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've ever turned from your sins and been born again through the Spirit of God, guess what? The contract has already been signed. And one day, church, there's going to be a recession, and there's going to be the groom coming with his torch and his friends, and he's going to come to the window of your heart, and he's going to say, son or daughter, arise and come with me because we're going to the table. And we're going to join him there forever. We're going to join him there forever. I mean, don't, don't mistake what's happening here. I mean, this stuff is good, but it is a foretaste, as the song says, of what? Glory divine. See, we've got to avoid the perversion of this, and we acknowledge the price, and we anticipate the promise, and very quickly we can apply the preparation of the Lord's Supper. We can apply the preparation of the Lord's Supper. You see, knowing all this, we're to prepare ourselves, and Paul tells us two ways here in the text to prepare ourselves. He says, first of all, we must re-examine ourselves. We must re-examine ourselves. Look in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. One of the things I'm thankful for is it doesn't say that only worthy people should come, because if only worthy people should come, we would never come but we must come in a way that is worthy. There are numerous ways that we come to take this supper in an unworthy manner. Let me just give you a few. If you come to take this Lord's Supper today because it's just a spiritual ritual for you, and it's really not about your heart being in connection with the Lord Jesus, you're taking it in an unworthy manner. Some people do this so many times, it's just a part of ritual. That's an unworthy. Some people can just go through the motions and have no emotion. If your heart isn't stirred by what's happening here, you might be taken in an unworthy manner. Some people come to this table and listen, I'm just preaching the truth to you, but if you come to this table thinking that by taking this table it'll make you right with God, you're defying the very gospel that Jesus said that Jesus has already taken away your sin by putting your faith in him before you come to this table. So to think that this merits grace means you think a work that you do can make you right with God, and it's a works-based salvation. And Paul's already said in the Galatians, that would be an anathema. If anybody comes preaching another gospel than the one I've given to you, let him be an anathema. That would be an unworthy way to take this supper. What about this? If I come here today and take this supper and I have unconfessed sin in my life or sin that I need to repent of and I'm not really willing to do it, don't take this supper today. It will be done in an unworthy manner. Definitely you don't want to come to take this if you've never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus. That would be an unworthy manner. If we do this in an unworthy manner, he says we are guilty of the blood and the body of Jesus. Guilty there means liable. It means that we would be liable for the discipline or judgment that comes because we did it in an unworthy manner. If we make, the, if we make a mockery out of the very thing that has brought our salvation, there remains no sacrifice left. 
So how do we avoid that? How do we come in a worthy manner? Paul tells us in verses 28 through 30. He says, but a man must examine himself, and in doing so he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number are asleep. Evaluate means to honestly evaluate our motives and our attitudes toward God, his word, and his people. The word literally meant to put yourself on trial with the result of finding anything that would be displeasing to the Lord. So we put ourselves on trial and we, we, we bring our prosecuting attorney, if we will, with us and we try to find anything that would be displeasing to the Lord and we go before the Lord in confession and repentance before we take of this. If not, Paul says, if you don't do that, we drink judgment on ourselves. Now listen, you got to pay attention here. Because the word judgment here is the word for discipline or chastisement as opposed to another word for judgment that means condemnation. Paul is talking to believers, so this makes sense. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. So we're not coming and saying, Lord, please show me what's wrong in my life so that I can be saved again. No, that's not what we're doing. Oh, Lord, Lord, please, I need to show you my sin so that I don't go to hell. No, no. If you've trusted in the Lord Jesus, your sin has been laid upon, upon Jesus and you bear it no more. This is not about condemnation. This is about discipline. And the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. They receive Christ. If, you've been, if you're the one that, that is here today, you believe that the wrath of God on your sin was put on Christ, and you've been forgiven and you're uncondemned, but you know that the Lord disciplines those he loves. For those who don't judge the body rightly means that they don't understand the body of Christ and how serious this really is. So we must examine ourselves because if we don't, Paul says then we're going to have to be judged in the sense that God would discipline us. And he says there, Pay attention here. He says, some will experience weakness. If you come to this table today, or if you've, you've come anytime, really, in an unworthy manner, the Bible says that you would experience weakness. What does that word weakness mean? Well, it describes somebody who's undergone a dehabilitating sickness. If you've ever been through a dehabilitating sickness like COVID, you understand how weak you were afterwards? COVID has nothing on doing this the wrong way. Then he says, some of you are sick. The word meant to move with speed or with violence, and it gradually come to mean health. Here in the Greek, it has a negative prefix. Thus, it means to not be able to move with speed or not to have health. So not only are you just super weak, now you have no health. You're not going to get any better. You know this is leading to, right? Because then he says, and some of you have fallen asleep. That's the word for death. Some are even going to experience death. Some of God's children. When you die, you will still go to be with God in heaven. But God's going to take you out because you didn't do this right. You're saying God would never do that. Ask Ananias and Sapphira if God would never do that. Guys, we have to re-examine ourselves before we come. This is not just plug-and-play church. That ain't what's happening here. He says we have to re-examine ourselves, and then he says we must renounce ourselves. He says there, hey, man, when you guys come together, wait for one another. 
It's as if we judged ourselves. That is a word that means to discern correctly. We're to properly understand what's really going on here. And he says, if we judge ourselves and examine ourselves, we won't be judged. That means to be separated or just to be picked out. So in other words, if you single yourself out before the Lord and try to get right, you'll prevent the Lord from singling you out because you're not right. Then he says there in verse 32, he says, but when we are judged, we're disciplined. That, that is the word that for training or correcting a child. Why in the world would God discipline us? This, the, watch this. You have got to see the unbelievable grace and mercy of God. I want to teach you something. I want to take you here. Okay? Verse 32. Everybody put your eyes on it. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. Watch this so that we will not be condemned with the world. Now pay attention here. What the Bible is telling us is, is this. This is God's way of eternal security in the perseverance of the saints right here. This is a Baptist doctrine right here. In other words, watch this. If you were truly saved in the faith, God would discipline you to the point that you can never deny the faith. That's what God's saying. He's saying that he would discipline you to such an extent that you could never deny your Lord. That's what he's saying. Look there in verse 32. If we're we're disciplined by the Lord so that, here comes the reason, we wouldn't be condemned. Now the word condemned means the judgment on the, the the wrath of God on judgment for sinners. He said condemned with the world. So God disciplines us so that we would never get to the point in place where we could ever deny our faith where we could ever receive the judgment of God. God disciplines us. He doesn't judge us with condemnation. This is amazing to me that our God right here says he's always going to keep those who've come to him because he will discipline you until you do. And check this out. Check this out. It goes right back to the garden where Adam and Eve were. Do you know this? If God hadn't kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, if God hadn't kicked them out of the garden, They would have continued to eat and live separated from God forever. There would have never been a way for for this whole thing to, because they would have continued to eat of the tree of life. And they would have continued to live in a separated state. They had to die and go through it because God in his sovereignty knows what we're going to do. And here in this way, listen, if you come in an unworthy manner, God says, here's what it's going to do. He might have to take you out before you ever did something stupid to where he'd really have to judge you. That is a gracious God to me. That's an amazing God. So we have to renounce ourselves, put our brother and sisters first, renounce my deeds, my desires, my wishes. And in the context here, make sure you, you aren't eating before people get there. I mean, make sure, true, I mean, the Bible says that getting drunk is a sin. Make sure that you're not doing that. Can you imagine coming together for the Lord's Supper and everybody's drunk? And that's before we even took of it. Have you ever placed, you ever bought, anybody got a pair of new white shoes in the room today? Y'all just, I'm not going to call you up here. Anybody know what, anybody ever have a new pair of white shoes? Thank you, Miss Kim. I'm going to pick on you just for a minute. Now, Kim, if you, if you had a pair of nice, new, I mean, sparkling, brand new pair of white shoes, and you placed them up beside a pair of Mike's white shoes, would there be a difference? Probably be a real big difference. Man, I got a new pair of Crocs last year for Christmas, and them bad boys are white, and I put them up against my old pair of white Crocs, and they're nasty. 
Here's what I'm trying to tell you. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we're comparing ourselves and putting ourselves up to the holiness of Christ. Listen to me. And when we see who He is, we see who we are. And that ought to do something in our hearts so we're not there yet. And listen to me. When we come and deal with this sin stuff, it should, we, we, we should be the most of all. We should like put our heads down and say, man, we're just such unworthy sinners. But the point is that Jesus Christ is saying through his body and through his blood, the Father has laid our sin on him so we can lift our eyes up and we can celebrate the fact that Jesus has made us right. That's what we're doing here. It all goes back to Jesus. We're told that when John Huss was arrested and informed that he would be burned to death for the sake for his faith, that John Huss, after learning that he was going to be burned to death for his faith in Jesus, that he, he practiced holding his hands and different body parts over the fire in preparation for the final test. He burned himself in preparation so that when the time come, he would be ready and would not renounce his faith. And friends, that's what you and I are supposed to be doing right now as I'm preaching. We're preparing ourselves to take the Lord's Supper. There may need to be some painful repentance that needs to take place. So let me ask you this. Right now, before we do it, because we're fixing to do it, is there some sin in your life that you need to repent of right now? Has the Lord put some calling on your life? He's, he's been asking you to do this over and over and over again, but you just keep denying it. Something he's asked you to do, but, but you just still haven't done it. Is there anything like that in your life? You need to do business with the Lord. You need to do it right now. Is there some relationship that you need to mend to the best of your ability? Paul says to live at peace with all men, if at all possible. Sometimes that's not possible. Is there anything in your life right now that if you were to come right now, you would do this in another way? Because we're fixing to take this, and I don't want you to do that because I don't want you to get sick, weak, or die. So we're going to do this thing. And here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to ask you to prepare yourself. And as you feel led of the Lord, I'm going to ask you to come to this table. And what I want you to do is, is Justin will be here and I'll be here. And we're going to serve you these elements, but I don't want you to take them because we're going to take them together. So I don't want you to come up here and get it and eat it on the way back to your seat or go back to your seat and eat it. I want you to wait, right? And what Paul said, to wait for everybody. That's why we're going to wait, because that's what Paul said to do. But between now and the time that we all take it, I want you to continue to prepare yourself. To remember the Lord. Anticipate that you're going to have the marriage feast, right? It's going to be awesome. Don't pervert this thing. Don't do it in a way. Examine yourself. So I'm going to pray a quick prayer, and then you get up out of your seat as you feel led. We have some gluten-free here for those who need it. Just ask for it. And then you just go back to your, your seat. And then in just a few moments, when everybody's been served, we'll take this together. Amen. So let me pray. And then I'm going to ask you to come as, as you feel led. God, you're holy. And I thank you for the body and blood of Jesus. 
Holy Spirit, right now in this moment, we ask you to show us if there's anything in our life that you're wanting to push us to Jesus about. We do not want to do this in a way that is unworthy. We want to honor Jesus. So show us. In Jesus' name, amen. You come.